welcome to HealthCast. I'm your host, Faith Ryan. Cancer patients are known to be at a high risk of developing more severe COVID-19 complications than the general population. Since March, telehealth services have also been widely used by healthcare providers to care for patients virtually in their homes, minimizing potential of viral infections due to in-person visits. But how are telehealth and remote digital tools supporting those with cancer? And what are some of the challenges and opportunities that remain for remote care beyond the pandemic? I spoke with Paul Jacobson, the Associate Director of the National Cancer Institute's Division of Cancer Control and Population Science, to learn more. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. Thank you for joining me today to talk about this really important subject, the role of telemedicine in cancer care, you know, in the situation we are all currently experiencing, the COVID-19 pandemic. Before we get into those questions, let's begin with your background. What led you to your current position with the National Cancer Institute? Well, unlike many people who spend their whole careers at the National Cancer Institute, I just joined four years ago. For many years before that, I had been working as a psychologist specializing in clinical care and research with people with cancer, trying to understand and address quality of life and quality of care issues. And the longer I worked in the field, the more I became interested in the translation of research into changes in practice of seeing that interventions and research I published and other people I published become used in clinical practice and seeing evidence-based guidelines adopted. And what I saw was that while certain aspects of cancer care changed pretty rapidly, so for example, if there was a new, more effective chemotherapy regimen, it was adopted pretty quickly. But things like palliative care, psychosocial care, very difficult to change because they required new delivery channels and reimbursement could be difficult. So I became more and more interested in studying the delivery of cancer-related care, both in terms of its quality and value. And National Cancer Institute had recently formed a healthcare delivery research program. And so as I learned about the program, it seemed like a great opportunity. And I joined NCI four years ago to head that program. Great. And NCI also has various divisions and centers. How does your division specifically fit into the agency's overall mission? And could you outline some of the division's main priorities? Sure. So NCI is a National Cancer Institute is a large organization, and uh, we're involved in numerous extramural research programs covering the whole spectrum of research on cancer. Basic research to identify fundamental biological discoveries, clinical translational research to develop new therapies and test them, and what's called population science research, which is what I'm involved in. We have a division of population science that includes people specializing in behavioral research in cancer, epidemiology research in cancer, and my particular area of interest, which is mostly focused on health services research. And specifically, NCI recognized the importance a few years ago of promoting greater study to how cancer care is actually delivered and ways we could improve the care based in part on a number of reports showing that there were some problems with the quality of care, that patients often were not getting recommended care, were not following through on screenings and treatments, and that there were disparities in care, that some people were getting better care than others. So our program was formed with a stated mission of advancing innovative research to improve the delivery of cancer-related care and thereby to improve the health for individuals and populations. I'd say that fundamental to this approach is the idea of a multi-level conceptualization of the factors that influence the delivery of optimal cancer care. If you think of concentric rings with the patient at the center, but the care he or she receives is also dependent upon not only their actions, but the actions of providers, clinic policies, the healthcare organization, community standards, and state and federal regulations. So that's just a brief sense of how we fit into NCI's mission. Just transitioning into the current situation we're all in for patients and physicians, 
The COVID-19 pandemic has added incredible difficulties and complexities to in-person visits for not just cancer, but for a broad range of diseases. Virtual healthcare visits have also increased dramatically since the pandemic began. How is telemedicine being used to support cancer patients and improve the delivery of care, as you had mentioned? Yeah, this has been fascinating to watch. You know, there had been some limited use of telemedicine in cancer care prior to the pandemic, but nothing like we've seen essentially since March of this year. And, you know, it's been said that necessity is the mother of invention, but here we're seeing that necessity is also the mother of innovation, that we take something that's already existing and begin to apply it. And a couple of the reasons for the dramatic increase in the use of telemedicine in cancer is that we really want to limit in-person clinic visits for people with cancer to limit the possibility of their becoming infected with coronavirus, especially since many of them fall into those groups that are at higher risk for severe illness should they become infected, either because of their age or because of being immunocompromised as a consequence of their cancer treatment. And we've also needed to limit in-person visits to limit the possibility of infected patients exposing other patients to the virus. And so since the onset of the pandemic, we've seen this incredible surge in the use of telehealth. Another contributing factor that really can't be overlooked is changes in reimbursement led by the government in March, waiving certain restrictions in Medicare reimbursement for telehealth that had previously been limited largely to residents living in rural communities, and also some relaxation in HIPAA policies, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act policies, allowing a broader range of platforms to be used for telehealth. And these are followed by state-level changes and private insurer changes in reimbursement. So in cancer, we've not only seen that patients are being pre-screened before they come into the clinic to make sure that either they don't have symptoms of COVID infection or whether or not they've been tested recently, but what we've seen is that a lot of visits have been converted to telehealth visits, and some of these include what are really routine follow-up visits with patients who've completed treatment to monitor for possible recurrence of their cancer, visits to review test results, to discuss treatment plans or management options, and particularly to monitor patients under active treatment, let's say between chemotherapy treatments, or to monitor patients who are on long-term therapies, oral therapies commonly, to see whether or not they're having continuing to have positive responses and no adverse side effects. There's also been a major expansion of telehealth to monitor and manage patients on clinical trials who are very closely followed for adverse events and also even to consent patients as appropriate for clinical trials virtually as well. Wow. It sounds like virtual care has actually helped support cancer patients a lot. I guess going to you know the relaxed regulations and also the expansion of telemedicine to support patient visits during this time, are there some challenges that exist for this type of care still? Oh, certainly. And, you know, to sort of comment on it, many patients have really appreciated having telehealth visits, not only for their own safety and their health, but it's not uncommon for many patients to live some distance from major treatment centers and so to avoid all the travel and other uh, hassles of travel. But some of the main challenges, I'd have to put reimbursement near the top of the list, and everyone is very closely following whether some of these emergency measures that allow for reimbursement for telehealth will continue. We also know that there are some real challenges to both providers and patients in terms of equipment for providers to have something beyond Zoom in terms of more sophisticated platforms to do telehealth and to integrate telehealth with the electronic health record. We know that in rural areas, there are major issues still with broadband access for both providers and patients. We can't ignore issues with privacy and security that exist. And there's been concern that the advent of telehealth might actually exacerbate health disparities if individuals don't have broadband access or the equipment. On the other hand, it may also reduce disparities since people may not have to take a day off from work to go to an appointment or have the transportation challenges. 
The other thing is that there are some aspects of care that work better with telehealth and others that don't. And obvious ones are you can't give surgery or chemotherapy or conduct a physical exam via telehealth. But there are some that may not work as well. And in cancer, we often have to have what are called advanced care discussions with patients where we talk about the possibility of moving to comfort care or hospice care. And these are very delicate discussions. And I've heard from many providers and patients that these are difficult conversations to have over a phone or using telehealth. On the other hand, there are other parts of this that work very well, routine follow-up visits. And there may be aspects of cancer care that even work better using telehealth. For example, what's been called remote monitoring. Going back to the inequities, do you see that investments in rural broadband as being critical in treating cancer patients during this time with telehealth? Absolutely. And I know the Federal Communications Commission has a number of initiatives increasing broadband access, and many of them are really being driven by issues related to healthcare that not only for patients, but actually for providers in rural area, that they don't have adequate broadband access to work off cloud-based applications. And so that is a fundamental concern, the increased broadband access. It really has become, much like rural electrification in the 1930s, a real societal requirement. Highlighting the role of technology, are there certain examples of digital health applications or research that you'd like to highlight that support cancer care efforts during this time? Yes, there are several things that we've been doing for years that have taken on added significance now during the pandemic. In various aspects of the cancer control continuum, we think about prevention. We've had a number of tobacco quit lines that have been available in many states. And this is really an essential service to help people quit tobacco use, which obviously is a major risk factor for cancer. We've known for years that we can deliver counseling and psychotherapy via telehealth, and we're seeing expanded use of that. In the area of screening, we know that there are certain tests that can be done by patients at home if we can uh, adequately counsel them about the need for these tests and instruct them on how to do it. So, for example, the fecal immunochemical test for colorectal cancer, that allows patients to undergo an initial screen for colorectal cancer outside the doctor's office. And in these days when patients can't come in for routine colonoscopies, this provides a valuable way to perhaps continue some form of screening. And lastly, you know, many electronic health records have had patient portals since they've gone online, but these patient portals prior to the pandemic had really been underutilized, maybe used for making appointments or to pay a bill, but they also have capabilities for secure email messaging, some of them for video conferencing, and some for patients to complete surveys or report on their symptoms. So we're seeing that a lot of existing technology that really had been underutilized is now being uh, utilized and filling important gaps. NCI also partners with agencies across the federal government and around the world to address the most pressing challenges facing cancer patients and their families. NIH is also leveraging infrastructure and expertise across the board for clinical trials and COVID-19 vaccine development, just the studies themselves. Could you go into the role of public-private partnerships for cancer care? Sure, and that's a broad topic. Probably you're aware of the Small Business Innovation Research, or SBIR, program. And this is an opportunity for uh, industries to develop products. And our group has been putting forward a number of uh, concepts here for digital applications through the SBIR program. So for example, digital applications to support family caregivers of cancer patients, clinical decision support to give clinicians advice about how best to manage patient symptoms. So that's a great opportunity there for private entities to get involved in providing digital solutions for cancer patients. And we also collaborate closely with a number of healthcare technology and services companies that are fielding electronic health records, 
increasingly we're finding that we can gather, quote unquote, real world evidence using electronic health records and being able to extract that information either because it was stored discreetly or using techniques such as natural language processing to get information out of free text. This is sort of the first way that we can rapidly collect information about, for example, we use this to note the increased trends in the use of telemedicine. Gotcha. And are there other applications in which artificial intelligence or machine learning could help in these efforts to, I guess, support cancer patients and their families during this time? Yes. You know, one of the challenges here is in gathering information and detecting things early. And so much information in electronic health records is really stored in what's called free text. And to the extent that we can mine free text and capture things noted in notes or in patient reports, that might be early tip-offs to problems occurring. So, for example, fatigue is often a prodromal symptom for many forms of cancer when they recur, or symptoms such as nausea and obviously fever can be early warning signs of infection or need to bring in patients for more evaluations. And so ways that you can kind of comb through the medical record at the individual patient level using these techniques is very helpful. And also combining data from many, many patients, there's so much information stored in electronic health records, the challenge is getting it out. And uh, these types of techniques, data science techniques, really offer the opportunity of extracting that information from the electronic health records. So screening still remains the mainstay for early diagnosis of many cancers, the common cancers, you know, breast, colorectal, and now lung cancer. However, many, many cancers are not diagnosed through screening, either because individuals are not participating in screening or it happens in the interval between screens. And in Europe, there's been much greater reliance on patient symptom reports or changes in daily patterns to be harbingers of when uh, a screening should be initiated. And so we've been interested in ways in which we might collect information and use artificial intelligence or other methods to identify some of the signals there that something might be going on that may be indicative of a cancer that then we would call somebody in for screening or other tests. So yes, it could aid in addition to established screening tools for the diagnosis of cancer. You had mentioned that one of the challenges that exists for telemedicine is high reimbursement. Do you think that the pandemic will change that in any way going forward? Well, I can only note what I'm reading and hearing, and that is that there's recognition that in some ways telemedicine is a more efficient way of delivering care for patients who don't necessarily need to be seen face-to-face, and also many patients prefer it. So I think that's going to be something that's dealt with perhaps in terms of legislation to allow continued reimbursement for it. I think also another factor at play is the extent to which reimbursement is either being done on a fee-for-service basis or on a value-based basis. So obviously, providers may do better if they're reimbursed for seeing people in person, but to the extent that reimbursement is being provided for the care of individuals and where telemedicine may be an efficient but less reimbursable activity, it may be supported. So it really depends on some legislative efforts there as to whether or not legislators support efforts to continue reimbursement and whether the healthcare organizations are organized around value-based reimbursement plans. Can we also talk about the expertise needed to conduct telemedicine visits for cancer patients specifically? Yes, this is something we're very interested in. And we've been really scouring the research literature that's out there about telemedicine and cancer. And a lot of it are sort of proof of principle studies that you can deliver genetic counseling or you can deliver another cancer-related service via telehealth. What we see the real lack of are programs or interventions to train clinicians about how to use telemedicine most effectively, and also ways that we could counsel patients about how to get the most out of a telemedicine telehealth visit. 
there really is a real gap, certainly in the cancer literature about this. And so that's something we're very interested in. Rather than just proving that you could do something during telehealth, how can you best do it? That's what's lacking. The other thing is that a lot of studies have been done showing that there's a way of doing something via telehealth, but these have been not broadly applied. And so what we need to do is research guided by implementation science so we can take these discoveries here and figure out how to get them into the clinical workflow, figure out how people currently part of the clinical workforce can deliver these interventions. That is actually very important, I think. I guess I want to touch on if there were any successes that your division has experienced in terms of advancing translational research and getting research into actual delivery practice. Yes. So we've been very interested in the ability to collect symptom reports from patients using standardized measures. And to date, those have been used primarily, you know, for research purposes to monitor people on clinical trials. But we believe in there's now some studies that show that if you give these symptom reports back to clinical care providers, they can use that to provide better symptom management that in fact leads to lower rates of hospitalization, fewer emergency department visits. And in one study, evidence suggesting better survival of cancer patients when you fed this information back to clinicians. This was demonstrated in a study conducted at a major cancer center. But what we have as part of the Cancer Moonshot Initiative is a large study where we're trying to implement this in healthcare systems, that we're working through existing electronic health records. We're embedding these symptom report measures in there that can be completed via patient portals and other means, delivering this information to clinicians in a way that's user-friendly, that suggests specific actions, and supplementing it with some guidance as to how clinicians could use these symptom reports to affect better pain management, fatigue management, et cetera. So these are three large-scale health system studies where we hope to demonstrate that you can scale this up to something that can be done in a large healthcare system, showing how it benefits in terms of not only better patient symptom control, but also better healthcare utilization. Lastly, where do you see the future of telemedicine for cancer care and the research behind you know, innovative methods to treat cancer and getting that research into actual practice? So I think there are a lot of things that we already know work that we need to translate into practice, and those are these T3 translation of practice studies such as symptom monitoring. But I think the frontier of work in this area is this idea of remote monitoring. You know, everybody's carrying around smartphones, and these can be attached to sensors. And so, for example, in cancer care, a fever is something that's often an indication, let's say, that patients may need to be hospitalized or come into the emergency department. And oftentimes, it's recognized too late, whereas, for example, if we could send patients home, let's say, following surgery or between chemotherapy visits with a simple monitor that captures their body temperature and feeds that information back to the clinical care team, we might be able to catch earlier patients who are experiencing fever suggestive of infection or other things and bring them into the clinic earlier and avoid their prolonged hospitalizations and other adverse effects. And so that's just one example where we could use remote monitoring combined with telehealth, the typical, you know, calling patients up and asking them how they're doing to really improve the management of patients. So I think there's a lot that can be done, not only with monitoring fever, but other physiologic indicators. Simple Fitbits have been used to monitor the extent to which patients have good performance status as they go through chemotherapy treatment. If you think about it, how physically active you are is a pretty rough indicator, but a good indicator of how well you're dealing with the adverse effects of chemotherapy treatment and can provide oncologists with the kind of information that might prompt a phone call or might prompt them to bring in a patient to evaluate what's going on if they've really been physically inactive for a prolonged period of time. 
Yeah, I definitely understand that. I actually bought a thermometer that connects directly to my phone. It's a Bluetooth temperature monitor. Yeah, and I just have it around just in case. But yeah, I definitely see wearables and technologies like that helping a lot. Sure. So another example would be scale. So if we have patients who are having unexplained weight loss, that might also be something that would sort of raise an alarm or at least prompt some further evaluation. I mean, there are a lot of technologies that could be used. And I guess like you said, it's just we have the research, but it's just getting it into practice, right? Exactly. We need the evidence to show that these are helpful and efficient ways of collecting information. And then once we have that evidence, we need to scale these up and get them into evidence-based guidelines and help practitioners with using these as part of their routine practice. Thanks so much, Paul, for sharing this information on this topic with me today. It was very helpful and insightful. And I really think that these agency efforts will help to improve the delivery of care for cancer patients now and into the future. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Ryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.